Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I am your host. I'm an intuitive human design reader, a certified professional coach, and an instigator of joy. And I am so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for listening. So this week, we are talking about the Enneagram. I know, finally, everyone always wants to talk about the Enneagram. And it's still relatively new to me. It's still a lot new to me. So I called in an expert, my friend Ashley is obsessed with all things Enneagram, knows all the things. Um, and so I asked her a bunch of questions. I still have a lot more, but here's, here's, here's the thing. We're humans. This whole human thing is confusing and complicated. And we all came here for a reason. And we all came here with all these gifts. And we forget what those gifts are and we forget what our reasons are. And so we have at our fingertips all of these tools to help us remember who we are. We've got human design, we've got the Enneagram, we've got astrology, we've got the doshas, we've got, I'm sure I'm neglecting a million things, but my point is that there are so many options. There are there's so much gold in each one of those things. And to remind you that you get to choose what fits for you, what feels good for you, and what doesn't. It's all up to you. So Ashley is a, a coach, a dancer, a retreat leader, and an Enneagram pro. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. I love you. Go forth and be awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Ashley. Yeah. I'm excited. Happy to be here. Um, so before we get into all things Enneagram and wherever else we may wander, will you just <laughs> share a little bit about yourself, please? Um, sure. The big question. Take it wherever I say you it's want. broad. It's very broad, Kelsey. Okay. I know. Um, well, I'm, I live in Dallas, Texas. I run a retreat-based business where I, um, I lead retreats in really beautiful places around the world. And I facilitate coaching programs, all based on a meditation practice and a free movement dance practice. Um, mostly work with people who want to kind of drop the shoulds in their life you know, just like stop doing all the shit they think they should do and start living in a way that feels really, really true for them. And so the work is all centered around that, um, that kind of self-expression. I love that you're like, it's kind of a broad question. And then that is your penetrating energy, what you just did, just to reflect oh. this back to you. That oh. like, da, 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 and I, I use meditation and a like free movement <laughs> dance practice. Yes. Okay. okay, good. Okay, good. Thank you for giving me that little insight. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. <laughs> you could have like wandered all over the place, but no, you just like dug right into it. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. So how <laughs> did you come across, I'm sure we'll get into other parts of your story along the way, but let's sure. just start out with the Enneagram. Where'd you learn about it? I first learned about it because one of my best friends, childhood best friend of mine had the wisdom of the Enneagram book on her bookshelf. And I don't know where she came across it, but when I would go to visit her, it would be on the bookshelf. 
and I would pull it out and peruse through it in a very, um, very true to my personality fashion, jump all over the book and try to digest all of it as much as I could at once. And then I put it back on the shelf and the next time I'd come visit, I'd do it again. So, How, was this like when you were a kid or is this eight years? Recently? No, about eight years ago. Yeah. Eight or nine years ago. Um, and then when I started doing my, uh, professional coach training, I trained with a school called integral coaching Canada. And one of the lenses that we're taught to look through is that of the Enneagram. And so it became more prominent in my awareness at that point is that's one of the ways that they sort of one assessment that they use to meet people where they are. And so I got more familiar with it then. And I started diving into it a little bit more. I think one of the reasons that I, I was initially fascinated, but not really enamored in the way that I could certainly say I am now is because I had mistyped myself. Oh, I had just looked at the basic descriptions and thought that I was a two and, um, twos are upbeat, friendly, outgoing. You know, the general description would say something like that and that they're helpful. Um, they want to do things for other people and want people to like them. And certainly I could relate to that. And it wasn't until years later when I did a little more digging and I realized that I'm not a two, very distinctly not a two actually. And when I did settle into my type, it was as if it all made sense. And, uh, then I could start to see things about myself that were really, really altering for me. And then I'm like, damn, this is good. This stuff is good. (laughs) All right. So like, what did you notice in yourself? So I, um, identify on the Enneagram as a type seven. Um, for those people that know a little bit about the Enneagram specifically, I'm a social seven, which I can talk a little bit more about that, but I, that's a, a subtype of the, the core personality type. And I really think that that matters. I think it's one of the reasons why people end up mistyping. So social sevens can look a lot like twos in that they are helpful or um, self-sacrificing in a way. But part of the real distinction between a two who will give because they have a real desire to be liked and be perceived as um, a likable, admirable person, like they're looking for your approval in a way that sevens aren't as much looking for the approval. They're just looking to avoid what feels bad. And so the motivation is really different. Um, And I could start to see for myself where as a seven, I had this real tendency to move towards whatever was exciting or fun or pleasurable and run like hell from whatever was uncomfortable or boring or mundane. And in some ways you could say everybody, you know, that's a basic, uh, ego pattern to move towards pleasure and away from pain. But the point seven on the Enneagram really captures that in all its, <laughs> all its glory. We're masterful at it. <laughs> mm. I'm, yeah. I, you know, I want to, I'm a seven and yeah. I don't know my subtype yet. We're going to figure that out. So I want to hear all about the seven, but let's start at the beginning. Will you tell us a little bit about each type? Sure. Um, so one of the things that's really beautiful about the Enneagram is that it captures 
in really nuanced ways the particular patterns of each type. So you could say that this personality is a collection of mental habit patterns and emotional habit patterns that we've used like a coping strategy to just kind of make it in life. And is it something like you heal from? You're able to be like, oh yeah, I totally saw, see when I used to do that. Totally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that is the point. So if you're, you know, I kind of get a little irritated about this as a personal rub with the trend of it in the culture, which I think is beautiful because a lot of people are introduced to it and that's really exciting. Um, But there can be a tendency with any personality assessment to go, you know, take some quiz and get an answer. And then we put it on like some label and then that's it. You know, maybe, maybe we have a little fun with it. We use it as a way to explain away our behaviors or maybe even justify them to which we're missing the point entirely. Right. So if all of a sudden, you know, I, of course I'm distracted, I'm a seven. It's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're missing it completely. Mm. Thank you so much for saying that. I am completely opposed to labels and boxes. <laughs> and yes, that can be a trait of manifesting generators. It's also a trait of reflectors. I think it can be a it's human totally a trait, trait of sevens. We don't want limits. Ah, of course. Right? Like the feeling of being limited. Oh, don't do that to me. Do not put me in a cage. <laughs> yes. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. But the difference, so when we talk about it in terms of growth, it's good because if you can recognize that your aversion to being limited is really stemming from a fear that you'll be trapped. And at an even deeper level, this, this fear that if you're not controlling what's going to happen, that life itself won't unfold and you won't get what you need. Right. So there's this, there's this underlying fear that's there that drives this need for options. And so that has its benefits in one way, but then you can probably recognize for yourself, I sure, surely can, the places where that in and of itself is a limit. Mm-hmm. You know, my inability or perhaps unwillingness to focus in on something or go all in on something to the exclusion of everything else can sometimes be a detriment. This is a do. All right. So I was diagnosed with ADHD in college. Is that actually, I have questions now about whether yeah. AD, I've never resonated with it as a disorder. Yep. Um, but does that tend to be a seven? It's um, so every type and we'll go back and we can do all of them. Right. But yeah. every type has a passion and a fixation associated with it. So the passion is the type's emotional habit, the emotional habit of the heart. And the fixation is the uh, mental habit of the mind, right? Where it fixates. So Mm -hmm. for sevens, the fixation is planning. That's not me at all. Well, it's it's like looking forward to what's next or to what's exciting, like creating the next possibility, what's next, the next thing. But you really could call it like 
uh, an addiction to mental stimulation. That I get, I'm, I love uncertainty. Like I'm passionate about not knowing what's coming next. I get really excited when I don't know what's coming next and I get bored if I already know what's coming next. Yeah, because unknown is the unknown is the field of infinite possibility. Yes, that's what I love. We're, we're possibility addicts. So yes. of course we would. And there's all the, all the, there's no limitation in that, right? So it would actually feel really challenging to be limited mm-hmm. in some way by something. Um, so yeah, but that, that mental addiction to stimulation, you could say is ADD right? Mm -hmm. That part of you that's like bouncing from one thought to another. Um, Sevens have very quick synthesizing minds. So connecting the dots, big picture thinking and connecting the dots between things is just a natural, easy thing for you to do. The more challenging work would be to streamline that focus right here. And to step, for you and me, to step into our penetrating energy and own it all the way. Yeah. But I, wait, this is actually really interesting because how scary is it to really own that penetrating energy? Because it's intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we get right to the core of it real <laughs> fast. If we want to, if we let ourselves. Yeah. Huh. There's a way that as I worked with this for myself, I notice this physical discomfort that comes from that kind of focus, that kind of eliminating the other stimulus. And, you know, some of the descriptors that they use for the types, and I think this is true of every type. We're talking a little in depth about the seven right now, but I think people, anybody that's listening, whatever type they resonate with, they could, they could look at the descriptors of their type. And there's probably those places where they're like, eh, not so much me. Well, at this point in my study, I'm, I'm taking the case that you just haven't seen it yet. So you think it doesn't quite resonate. And I would say stay with it and get curious about the specific way that that thing manifests for you. Because I would have thought FOMO, I don't really have that. Like I live a really engaged, active life. When I want to do something, I do it. You know, I travel all over the world. It's like, I don't really think of myself as having FOMO. But the experience that I have when it's time to sit down and do something that is what I would consider the boring mundane aspects of my business, right? Like you need to sit, you need to write that wrap up email that's going to take you an hour of like intent. And I need to start laundry first and I need to get a drink of water. And then I'm going to take the dog out real quick. And then, Oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom and then, Oh, let me just organize these clothes in the closet real fast. And then before I do that, I'll respond to this email. And I am like all over the place and it takes something to get me there And when I actually sit to do that and go there, what I have is like a physical sensation, like I'm sinking or weighted. Mm. Is it positive? No, that's the, well, I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable. It doesn't feel particularly good, which is why I avoid it. Yeah. This is, so I see this in so many ways. Definitely the same example as you. 
And when I had pneumonia, I had pneumonia for eight weeks. That was like a FOMO. All I just wanted to go out and play. I was so jealous is the only word I can think of, of everybody who was not sick with pneumonia. Um, <laughs> yep. And then there's another, oh, this, the, the focus piece. So I was diagnosed with ADHD in college. So that's a long time ago, a lot of time for me to learn to focus, to go through the whole, oh, I can't meditate because I have ADHD. I can't, you know, go through all of those stories and then come out the other side of them. And I can see that um, if as soon as something gets uncomfortable, I want to come out of focus. And I have trained myself to be able to focus really well on something. And it's scary as, as hell okay. like when I get there and to like, because there's a part of me sometimes when I'm in that focus that can pull back and be like, oh my God, what am I doing? And that's the scary part. And then just like, no, come back into it. Yep. Yep. That's good. That's the work. That's mm. the, that's the place where if you use the Enneagram as the tool for transformation, it's designed as, or it's meant to be, that's exactly what it would do. It would allow you to see that this part of you that's in constant motion is a conditioned personality that will keep you imprisoned in it as long as you're a slave to it. Mm -hmm. But if you can recognize that part of you that wants to bounce and you can like get, go against it basically, because it's a real, it's really a manifestation of the passion. The passion for the seven is gluttony. And it's this, it's that wanting a little bit of everything that wanting more, wanting satisfaction, wanting, right. So if you can recognize that it's, it's a manifestation of this passion or this gluttony, we have to fight against that. Otherwise we have a life ruled by gluttony, which is to say we have a life ruled by personality, which is just conditioned habit patterns. That's not the fullness of who we are, right? One of the prominent teachers in the one of the authors of the book I originally mentioned, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, Russ Hudson, he says it best. I think he says, your personality is the primary way you cut yourself off from your true nature. Hmm. So there is this fullness of who you are and your personality is the primary way that you lose yourself or forget the truth of who you are. Interesting. I, I'm just like processing that right now. I feel like that might take a day. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, right. Can you explain the subtypes, please? <laughs> yes. Um, so there are nine core types on the Enneagram. And within each type, there are three subtypes. So you really could say that there's 27 different types and the subtype is comprised of the passion of the type and the instinctual drive that's most dominant. So again, there's a lot of complexity to this and I know it's all new information, so it might be, but, but each type has their passion. So for instance, if we start at the top and we say there's a type one 
is known as the reformer or sometimes called the perfectionist. Um, type ones tend to look out at life and naturally see what's missing as it relates to their ideal of how good and how beautiful it could be or how perfect it could be, right? So they just naturally see what's wrong compared to how good it could be. And their passion is anger. So it sort of manifests like this, this like frustration that you could imagine someone experiencing when life doesn't match how their ideal of what it could be. Right. right. So the three subtypes of the one are going to look very different and it's all going to depend on how their, the instinctual drive marries with the passion of anger. So we've got all kinds of instinctual drives, but for the context of the personality, we're talking about three basic ones, which are self-preservation, a social instinct, and a sexual instinct, or what's sometimes called one-to-one instinct. Um, they're all primitive, animalistic, gut-driven instincts that are oriented towards survival. So a self-preservation instinct is going to be a bit more like, you know, personal, I'm concerned with my personal survival, food, shelter, material, like that. Um, the social instinct, if it's most dominant in you, then you're looking to ensure your safety and your survival through your standing in the collective. You know, it's like if, if we're accepted by and get along with the herd, we have a better chance of survival. And then we've got this one-to-one instinct or sexual instinct that says like, if I'm attractive, if I can bond with you in this intimate way, sort of the need that we have to kind of transmit some aspect of ourself to another is an instinct. And when that's driving the show or most dominant and it mixes with the passion, it's going to look its own way. Hmm. So it's, there's referred to a dominant instinct is to say that the instinct is overly active more active than is actually necessary. And often it's, it's hijacking energy from other places. Then we have a neutral instinct and then we have one that's actively repressed. So there's just some discrepancy in different schools of thought around the Enneagram. Um, but what I, my teachers, my study, this is the, this is the theory and this is what makes sense to me in my own exploration one dominant, one actively repressed, and one that just kind of falls in the middle. So you're going to have three different looking sevens or fives, or they're all going to have that same core passion and that same basic fear and kind of motivation, but how it gets expressed looks, can look very different. Huh. Okay. It's, it's one, I want to say right there, like it's one of the reasons that people often mistype or have a hard time typing themselves because they take some like quick free assessment that doesn't take into account subtypes. And so, you know, it says that it says that there are two and really they're a social seven, right? That was my story. Right. Or maybe it says they're in, they're an eight, but really they're a sexual four or something like that. Right. Like, so it, it kind of depends. Oh, there's so much here. All right. Will you keep guiding us through, uh, what, what are twos like? Okay. So twos are the helper or sometimes called the giver. Um, this person is relationship oriented. 
Um, the passion of the two is pride. So there's kind of this sense that um, I know what you need. I know what you need better than you know what you need. Um, but they're oriented towards other people, very caring, generous people, friendly people most, most of the time. Um, and it's almost a misnomer to say helper giver because it's not just about that. The real motivation for a two is to, um, to have people think well of them, to be approved by people or liked by people. And if that means helping sometimes, then helping. And, gen and generally very good at reading people and discerning people's needs to the extent that they will ignore their own. Um, type threes are the achiever or sometimes called the performer. So this type is very task driven, very much about getting the to-dos done, accomplishing the goal um, at any cost sometimes. For this type, it, it can feel a lot like dying to just stop the activity. <laughs> so those people are probably having the hardest time in quarantine. Well, it, it might would depend on if they're still able to be productive, mm -hmm. right? If they're still able to produce or where they're perhaps directing that get stuff done energy. But the basic thing that's moving them is this core belief that my worth comes from what I accomplish and what I do. So as a, as a culture, America is a very social three culture. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah. look what I did and how I did it. And, you know, there is a place where they kind of want to be patted on the back for it mm -hmm. or recognized for it. So, yeah. Right. And it's interesting because I think we all have a, if I'm understanding correctly, we, we can all see ourselves a little tiny bit in every single one. Right. I mean, like sometimes if I like, you know, take the trash out or vacuum or something like that, that's when I want to meddle. Yep. So I guess that's, that's my inner three showing. Totally. And it's not when I finish a race, mind you, it's when, <laughs> I, when I fold the laundry or whatever. When you did the boring thing. Yes. I did the boring thing. I should be, <laughs> I need some recognition for this. Yes. Yes, totally. Yeah. I mean, we have what the Enneagram is pointing to is the whole spectrum of humanity. So we certainly have aspects of all the different types within us. It's just that there's one core driver mm -hmm. that can be identified there. Yeah. And the Enneagram as a symbol and as a path is really this perpetual motion and evolution because there's the Enneagram of personality, but then there's this Enneagram of process that points to our evolution and our waking up, you know, how we fell asleep to who we are and got where we are and the process and the path for which we travel to, to wake up and come into the truth of who we are. So could somebody be identify as one type at one stage in their life and then as another type at another stage in their life? No, you come in with your, the, the sort of agreed upon is like you come in with this type mm -hmm. structure and it doesn't change, but certainly the way that it expresses looks very different. So there's distinct difference between a two that has been engaged in doing their inner work and a two that is not just like anything else though, right? Like any other model that we might use, if you've got someone who's in the full 
trappings of their personality and all the neuroses that come with that, that's going to look one way, um, kind of automatic tendencies, coping strategies, blind spots, shadows, all of that versus someone who's done some work to, to integrate those shadows, to own those parts. You know, maybe I, I can acknowledge that my motivation here is to win your approval. So I have a little choice about whether I actually make the move or not. Very different expressions. And the Enneagram kind of accounts for that. It, if you look at the symbol, you see the places where there are arrows and lines between the numbers and it's indicating these paths of growth. So in the lingo, you hear people refer to things as wings. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people will say, I'm a seven with a six wing, or I'm a four with a three wing or something like that. Um, I don't think that that's that big of a deal in, I don't think you have a fixed wing so much. Um, you have access to both sides, but your wing is always directly adjacent to your core number. So it's never going to be across the circle from you. It's always right next door. And these are considered your um, easier growth stretches. So when it comes to doing personal growth, it's like these are the places right next to you where you have an easier time accessing those. Versus when we go to look at the arrows, those are a more radical transformation. So okay. to make the move from seven to one is a much more drastic transformation than to stretch into your eight. Hmm. So it kind of, it kind of accounts for and points to all that. Um, okay. So type four is the individualist, um, sometimes called the romantic. This is a, this, this type has a natural habit pattern of looking out and seeing what someone else has that they immediately interpret to be lacking in themselves. So the passion of the four is vanity, is um, envy. Oh, sorry. I didn't say the passion of the three is vanity. So it's like wanting to look good. Okay. Wanting to look good, wanting to look accomplished, right? Even if it means a little deceit in order to do it. Um, so the fours, the passion is envy. And there's this kind of this inherent belief that you, you have something that I just don't have. Um, they tend to, uh, this, this expresses very differently in the subtypes, like what they do with this envy looks very different. Um, one type of four is kind of a long suffering, uh, work really hard. I see what you have. I'm just going to go, go after it myself. They can kind of look like sevens, self-preservation fours can look a little bit like sevens. Then they've, they've got the four that wears their suffering a little bit more on their sleeve. Um, it's more, more apparent. They're not afraid to let you know they're suffering. That's a social four. And then we've got this sexual four that is more inclined to make you suffer, right? So they can have a little bit more of a to them. So those, so those the, from that good. description, it doesn't sound like I want to spend any time with the four. But is that, <laughs> is that just the way I'm hearing it? Yeah. Well, you know, you got to appreciate that when we're talking about these things in this way, then yes, the Enneagram can point to our gifts. But what it's doing better than anything else is helping us to see our, our neurosis, our, our dysfunction. So it's not particularly 
comfortable, uh, feel good material so much, you know, but, but there are, of course, like beautiful things about my best friend is a four. She's a social four. And, um, she has such immediate access to her emotions in a way that for me as a seven, I just don't. And particularly some of the uh, lower emotions like sadness and melancholy. You know, the problem comes for a four when they get too identified with those feelings and they, you know, set up camp and make a home there. That's, that can happen in an unhealthy state, but there's also this way in which they can access these depths that come much harder for me. So it's really great actually to be in relationship with a four, especially that's doing their inner work and just see the range that they have access to, the depths that they're willing to go to that my personality would otherwise have me run like hell from for fear of getting stuck, right? It's like, ooh, I don't, even as you said it, you're like, I don't really want to hang out with them. Yeah. It's kind of like that. <laughs> Are there certain types too that like the sevens tend to gravitate to certain types or do we need certain types for our development? Gosh, that's a really good question that I don't feel, I don't really feel I can answer in an educated way. I don't know. Um, I do think that there are some theories around that where you see, um, some commonalities in the challenges people experience with certain types. So yes, um, I just don't have a really good grasp to be able to speak to it myself, but certainly certain aspects of different people's personalities are going to push on us for different reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I find it really challenging to be with sevens when I'm seeing parts of myself that they're not necessarily awake to, it kind of makes me cringe. I'm like, Oh, I do that. There's work, you know? And, <laughs> um, and then I find like certain types, like I said, this, this four that can give me access to this part of myself. Um, so I've got some personal theories about it, but you have to do some research on that. Mm, yeah. Okay, so type five is the investigator, or it's sometimes called the observer. Um, these people are perceptive and innovative, and they like to go deep. So as a seven, we have a line to the five. Um, this is sort of a drive to understand how it all works and put it all together in a way that makes sense. Um, the passion of the five is avarice. And so it's like a, avarice is sort of like greediness. It's, uh, stems from this, this belief that there's only so much that I have and I need to hold on to it and protect it. Mm. So they relate to their time and their energy as being, uh, a finite resource and that they need to protect. So they tend to be a little bit more withdrawn, um, more, more loners, not to say that they can't be sociable or out and engaging, but, um, they absolutely definitely need their alone time. Like they're gonna, and, and tend to detach from their feelings. So they need to get alone to sort of process those feelings. Um, 
yeah, deep thinkers. I have some, I have a, I have a five in my coaching program right now and she's fantastic. I just, I, I really enjoy being around fives and how they think and they're in that head triad. Five, six, and sevens fall into the head triad. So we like to think things through and have things make sense. And I appreciate that about them. Okay, so sixes are the loyalist or sometimes called the devil's advocate. Um, sixes look out and they tend to have this automatic way that they're scanning the environment for potential threats. So always kind of forecasting and looking for what could go wrong. The passion of the six is fear. And so it's kind of motivated by this looking to protect. But again, these three subtypes look very different too. So self-preservation sixes, they deal with their fear by creating allies and trusted friendships and being really warm and friendly. And that sort of hedges their fear by creating this sense of safety with these certain people. I just got a picture of teen, like high school girls who like have to link arms to, or this is mm. my experience, who have to link arms yeah. to like go to the dining hall or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Right. And it can look really warm and friendly and, and the difference is, is that motivated by fear or is that motivated by wanting to be white? So it's one of the reasons why it's hard to just look behaviorally. And um, sometimes I see that happening in a really sort of superficial way. Oh, they do this. They must be this type. Well, it doesn't really work like that because it's all motivation based and you don't know just by looking at someone's actions, what moved them to that action. So we have to be a little careful when we think we can know what someone's type is just by that. I really, um, I like that about this system. And I, there, there's a similarity with human design in that way. I think a lot of people like to guess that someone's type and profile and all of that. But the thing is, we have no idea how much conditioning somebody is operating under. So we really, mm -hmm. truly have no idea what type they are. Yeah. Yeah. And we lose something as soon as we think we know an answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beginner's mind, please. Always. Yeah. Yeah. When people are grappling to try to sort out their type, I always remind them that it's better to be asking the question and be in an inquiry because then it's actually serving the purpose of growing your self-awareness than it is to find some answer and slap it on like a label. Like, right. Right. So okay, you told so us about six. what the social sixes. So the self-pres six looks like that. Um, okay. Social sixes tend to deal with their fear by um, trying to identify the authority, the trustworthy authority in the situation. What are the rules and how can I abide by them in order to be, you know, good and safe. And they tend to be a little bit cooler and more, more calm than the a little cooler, colder than the self-pres version. And then you've got the sexual six, which is um, referred to as the counterphobic six in the Enneagram world. So this is the counter type of it. That's something that we won't go into. There's like all these, all these little side roads you see we yeah. could take, right? And the, uh, but we won't get into that. But for the sixes, that's the, the sexual six is the counterphobic six. So they deal with their fear by facing it head on. 
So it's like, I'm afraid. And my way to relieve myself of this is just to like, go for it. So they can look very courageous. They can, they can look a bit like eights because they just can display what looks like confident action in the face of fear. But it's again, motivated by their desire to, to handle that fear, relieve that fear. So when we are figuring out what our wing is, is it just like, like, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, I don't, six doesn't really resonate with me. Does that mean that's probably not my wing? It's probably not your dominant wing. Okay. And it could be a place that you, um, it could be a place that you stretch into for growth at some point, you know, it's right next door. So it's a little easier, but yeah, that would be my guess too, that you probably lean more on that eight side. All right. So sevens, sevens. you told us about social sevens. Well, yeah. I don't know if you told us about sevens at all. So just do your well, thing. The, Keep the, going. Passion, the passion of the seven is gluttony. And so that is that desire for a little bit of everything. I want to taste a little of everything. Um, that addiction to mental stimulation. And so sevens are really just looking toward to move towards what's pleasurable and exciting and avoid what is boring or mundane. That's pretty much it. Fear of getting trapped in pain. There's a lot we could say about it, but it looks, it looks different in the different subtypes, but, um, it's, that's the, that's the basic premise is how do I get my needs met? Because somewhere I have this belief that if I don't go after it in this assertive sort of way, it won't happen. So there's like a, there's like a fundamental distrust in the natural unfolding of our soul and of life to fill our needs. Which what are the, what are the different subtypes look like for a seven? So a self-preservation seven expresses gluttony in like a collecting of people. So building a network, uh, there's a way in which I, I create these kind of like alliances, but I, I, this, this band of people around me at, that I trust. And these people perhaps can give me access to something what, to, that I want or that I need. So there's kind of an opportunistic way that these sevens go about making connections, probably very much in the subconscious realm, not really realizing, but always kind of looking out for a deal, being open to a deal. You know, any conversation can end in a business transaction or let's go to your lake house or, right? So there's kind of mm-hmm. this opportunistic way of looking out and tend to be very, um, they kind of refer to it as like a playboy mentality, like want to live the good life and that kind of way. Does that, I know if you're just listening, you can't see me gesturing, but it has an energy and a gesture to it that's like, yeah, self pro seven. <clears throat> Social sevens are the sub are the counter type of the seven. So for each of the, the three types, there are two that go with the flow of the passion, and there's one that goes counter or kind of against the stream of the passion. And that's the case in every type. And for the seven, the social seven is the counter type. So they sort of go against gluttony. So the idea is I can feel this insatiability within me to want all the things. And I have this sense that it's a bad thing and I need to put a lid on it. So as to not seem like a total jerk and instead have people think I'm really good. 
So it's kind of sacrificing what you want in a martyry kind of way in order to be seen as good by people around you. Does minimalism fit in there? I don't feel like it's motivated by wanting to be seen as good, but. I don't know what you mean, wanting to live in a minimal, like you having a desire to live in a minimal way. Yeah. I, I mean, it could potentially be there, right? Like to be, um, to kind of get, get by on less, to make a point of getting by on less. Mm. Um, that's a very five quality actually. Um, I'll tell you the way. So when I learned my type, it was like, but when I saw my subtype, shit started to make sense in a really interesting way. One of the places when I was, when I first began paying attention and started noticing it, I went on a women's dance retreat. I mean, there's like, there's like a hundred of us at this retreat and we have this fantastic session. We all gather around to have a little sharing circle. And the, you know, the two women that are leading it, of course, these badass women, they're leading it. They're sitting in the front. We're all kind of semi-circling around them. And as we do, I, I scoot up and there's someone in front of me that's sitting in one of those back jack chairs on the floor, you know, so they can lean back. And there's a whole space in front of them that's open. And I can feel myself like, I want to get closer, right? Like I want to be, and I don't say anything. I don't do anything. And the girl kind of looks over in my general direction to the people beside us and, and says, if anybody wants to move up, feel free. And immediately I can feel my yes, but my immediate inclination is to no, let somebody else. Because the sense is that if I take it, I'm being selfish. I'm taking something that I shouldn't. I'll be seen as selfish. I need to be seen as giving. And it's all that noise is what's underlying it. But because I'm bringing awareness to this and I'm working with it, she said that. And I was like, okay. And then I just, you know, jumped up and put myself in the seat and got up as close as I could. And I was like, oh, that feels awesome. <laughs> but so much of my work has been allowing myself to have, you know, actually being less sacrificial, not playing the martyr mm -hmm. bullshit but actually letting myself have what I want has been a lot of my work. But everybody's work's going to look different because you can see really quickly that for someone else, actually sitting back and letting someone else would be the work. So it's not a one size fits all. It really is recognizing your tendencies and then working to um, go beyond them in, in some form or fashion. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's how gluttony shows up in the wanting to be good of a yeah. sexual seven. What does the sexual seven look like? Um, the sexual seven has a glutton, has a, a gluttony for things of the higher realms. So they tend to be idealistic dreamers, kind of naive in a sense, like really can be like kind of head in the clouds. This would be um, all sevens have the tendency to put on the rose colored glasses, but the sexual seven for sure, it's like ignoring negative data in order to stay focused on the positive and stay up. Yeah. I see that, that, that's probably mine. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I like, I see it more in my past. I see, yeah. I see my evolution from that. 
Yeah. Yeah. You can certainly recognize where you might've started when you start to match up the growth work that's been most impactful for you Mm -hmm. with the path of that. Yeah. For some sexual sevens, it would be having, having to learn to be more pragmatic and yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Why would you want to do that? Right? In other words, how to be more boring? Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know, to recognize the tendency to avoid it at all costs, to like let that stuff be in the blind spot and, and, and be willing to see where that might be a detriment. You know, I mean, I did my bit in the first years of my business as a businesswoman, you know, I did, uh, a few years of my business with my head in the sand around the numbers, as long as there was enough and I was doing what I loved, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't, I felt like I would do this shit for free anyways. I love this. And so it didn't feel like a place I wanted to give my attention. It was boring. And, but then I came to a point in my business where I recognized that if I'm not attentive to that, then it'll become a limitation. I can only grow so far unless I start to do the work and take that seriously. And, you know, I had to put in some structures that allowed me to be more pragmatic. I even hiring a bookkeeper because I don't want to do it or something of that nature. Um, but without that recognition or seeing that, and I just kind of keep, as long as it's working and I'm having fun, we're all good. Well, and I can see how it can feel like a big should. Yeah. Like it's a big should, I should be in on the numbers but what you just said like hiring a bookkeeper because i don't want to do that because that's not my zone of genius yep 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 exactly um oh my gosh there's like all these things i could say about what you just said but i want to keep going so that we because we'll just have otherwise tangents so the eight is the challenger or sometimes called the boss um this is a very, uh, so, so eights tend to look out and naturally see where's the power, who has the power. Are they yielding it fairly? Are they doing what's right with it? They have a real attunement to justice or injustice, tend to feel compelled to act on behalf of justice. Um, a real concern for the truth. Sometimes getting their subjective truth confused for the objective truth, thinking that it is the truth. Um, Tend to be very forward, direct, no-nonsense kind of people. Um, Some people could say they're intimidating, um, take up big, big energy. The passion of the eight is lust, so it's kind of this intensity for whatever is there can, can border on excess at times, like big energy, big intensity there. Uh, my dad's a self-pres eight. So got a lot of good eights in my life. Yeah. So what does um, that look like? Some, sometimes get, sometimes eights get a bad rap because, um, they're, they're really the only, uh, type in the Enneagram that sort of has this natural going against. So they can kind of be confrontational in a way, like, a not afraid to, to challenge. I mean, as it's, as, as it's called, not afraid to challenge. And I think there's a place where, and as, as a coach, as I've, as I've coached eights, um, 
they're, they're not afraid to confront or yeah, but, and it can almost feel initially like they're being uncoachable, right? Because it's as if they're just not willing to take the coaching, but they're not just going to take it lying down. So there's a place that if you are willing and you, you have to go toe to toe with them, then there's a great amount of respect that comes from it. So they got no problem, not, not necessarily that they like to fight, but if we go toe to toe, then at least in the end, I know where we both stand and I can trust that there's like a truth in that. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're wanting to get to. And they're willing to go through that in order to get there. But for some types and for some people, it's just like, God, you're difficult, you know, or I I don't want confrontation. So I feel uncomfortable with it. Um, But that's, it's really motivated by that. They're not actually um, angry or difficult, generally speaking, unless they're just really unhealthy, you know, they're just advocating for truth and kind of measuring that sense of, of power. Yeah. Don't want to be seen as weak. So they tend to be a fairly guarded, um, unless they're doing their inner work, you know, then they're probably not going to show you their vulnerabilities. Yeah. I know some aids. Okay. Yeah, then you know. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, the type nine is the peacemaker, sometimes called the mediator. And um, the point nine on the Enneagram represents this overall human tendency that we have to fall asleep to ourselves, to fall asleep to who we are. And so for nines, there's a real interest in keeping harmony and comfort. And so they're, they're looking outside of themselves and the environment or with other people. And they kind of this, this tendency to merge with the environment that they're in, into the routine, um, into the people that they're with or around them to the point that they kind of lose themselves in that process. So it's a, it's a self forgetting. It's like a self forgetting of their own agenda or their own preferences. Are there elements associated with each number? Because as you were describing nines, I'm just seeing like the ebb and flow of tides. I'm seeing water, mm. very watery energy. Yeah. You know, I don't know of elements being associated necessarily, but they're, they are broken up into several different, different groupings and triads. Um, there are mudras for the types, which are really interesting. Oh. You know, bo- body movements and stuff for the types. That, that, so, that is... So what is it for sevens? Sevens is this graspy, right? It's like hands everywhere, grabbing from everywhere, all around, quick motion like this. Um, There's a a virtue for every type as well. So we make the move as we do the inner work. The path of the Enneagram lays out for us this movement from vice to virtue or from passion to virtue. So for the seven, it's gluttony but the virtue we move into is sobriety, which is not necessarily what we think of in not drinking or eating like that, but it's that part of us that's mentally addicted to stimulation. Mm -hmm. It's that breaking of that addiction. So sobriety has this mudra that is hands down, still focused out and single focused. Very different energy. Is it... So as you've gone through the types, um, are we 
is the Enneagram saying that there's something wrong with like the way you're describing the types that there's something wrong with it and you're going like is there something wrong with being excited by everything for a seven (laughs) no it's not like it's not like there's something wrong with you but it's not the fullness of you i mean every ego this is the, when we're looking at the personality, we're looking at the ego structure, like the, the skeleton upon which the ego hangs. Or you could say like, if we built a house and we had a foundation, we've got these pillars and these anchors and these walls, right? Like that's the ego structure of the personality and everything gets built upon that. So it's not to say that it's wrong. I mean, you came in like this and everybody has to have an ego. Like when we move, we, we, we're born into the world and we're born into this, this oneness, spiritually speaking, right? We're one with everything that we're experiencing. And we have to move through this process of what in many spiritual traditions is called the fall, like the forgetting in which the ego develops. And that has to happen. We, we experience ourselves as a body that's separate from that of our parent. We experience pain and pleasure, which further differentiates us. Um, we We find that our environment isn't sufficient to reflect back to us the real depths of who we are. Most of us didn't get born to enlightened parents that would just, you know, reflect back to us our divinity, right? So we, along this process, by the time we're about four years old, we've lost that contact with the oneness that we were born into. And this ego has now structured and getting developed. So we need that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's part of being human, but to stay within the trappings of it would be living a fraction of what's possible for you. Mm. What lights you up the most about the Enneagram? That it's a doorway to freedom. And does freedom look different for every type? Probably. Yeah, probably. As a seven, of course, I would say it's freedom, right? I'm oriented to that. But it's, it's, um, we are in a sort of prison of our conditioning and our habit patterns. And without the recognition of those patterns, we're, we're sort of condemned to it. But as soon as we can see the prison that we're in, that is our opportunity to step out. And yes, I think the work looks different for everybody and the freedom looks different for everybody. You know, for me, it's like, freedom from glut. If gluttony drives me, there's a point that it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And given that personality is always a compensation for what we have felt we've lost, it's always compensating for the loss of contact with our essential nature. 
And a compensation will never fulfill us. So it doesn't matter how much we grasp for, how many experiences we have, how many possibilities we can taste. Until we make that contact with our essential nature and we can see the fullness of who we already are, we'll just be in a, we'll just be on the hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. So you've said a few times, like the fullness of who we are and how our mm. personality holds us back from the fullness of who we are. Mm. Can you say more about that? Like, what does that mean? Well, who yeah. are we? I guess. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. Well, it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great. So there is this, this on a spiritual level, when we can contact the realm of being, it's that, right? So every personality is an offspring. Oh, it's, it's a variation of what happens when we lose contact with some essential aspect of being. But when we're born, we're just, we are just being. Mm-hmm. And then we, we've, we, we differentiate from that as we have to through our development. And then, and then before you know, it, it's like, we've lost all contact with that. So I'd say that there's this depth to us when we can access the, the, the being that sources all of it. That's very distinct from just a personality and action. So um, one of my favorite spiritual teachers his, is a man, Stephen Levine, he's passed now, but um, just a beautiful Buddhist practitioner and spiritual teacher. He uses the reference that um, it's like the ocean and the waves, you know, that we all come from this oneness, this beingness, and then it manifests these like little individual waves that may look seemingly separate and yet they are a part of the whole. And so here we show up like Kelsey or Ashley or whatever, like this little wave or this personality that's upbeat and friendly, helpful, confident, but it's like a little wave. If we mistake ourselves for the wave and we forget that we're the whole ocean, that we're the whole ocean. I love that so much (laughs) that, that I feel that in my body. And that's where I feel truth. Yeah. The not yeah. truth goes in my head. I truth yeah. goes in my body. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You can feel it. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, and then when we, when we, when we can recognize this personality is how I cut myself off from that. These habits of thinking and feeling are, are an attempt to reconnect me with that but they're the very thing keeping me from that as long as I don't recognize them. Mm-hmm. So that's a really like catch 22, right? It's the very thing that we're doing. We're only grasping for everything because we think it's going to fill us or satisfy us. When the ultimate satisfaction comes, when we make contact with the depth of our being. That's a mic drop right there. So let's wrap this up. Actually, this has been epic. Thank you. Yeah. So oh, much. Thank you so much. Yeah. How can people 
find you, work with you, learn more about everything, <clears throat> your retreats? Um, yeah, yeah. Enneagram. Yes, um, for sure. So everything is on ashleywoods.com. I'm an Ashley Woods with an IE, so A-S-H-L-I-E. Um, I have Enneagram sessions that I do. So if someone is curious about their type, maybe they don't know it exactly, or maybe they do know their type and they just want to know how specifically they can use that information for their own growth. Then I do these deep dive sessions, um, where we get into that and you leave with a practice that you can begin working with and on for your own development. So those are really fun. Um, those are on my website. I don't have any upcoming retreats at the moment because thank you, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say that I have one, the ones that were meant to happen this year are happening next year. So yes. And next July will be in Guatemala and next fall will be in India. Um, all things, you know, all things considered, yeah. that's the point. So uh, but all that information is on my website. And then my, I have a Facebook under wild hearted. So you can find me on Facebook there. And then you're on Instagram too, right? Yep. Instagram too. Ashley.woods. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. I love talking about this stuff, but you can't tell. So. Yeah, I can. And I love it. I love watching your light shine. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. We did it. That's everything you need to know about the Enneagram. Just kidding. There's so much more. And you know what? There's no shame if you have to go back and listen to this episode again, once, twice, however many times. It was a dense one. There is so much information and Ashley is filled with so much more information. So please reach out to her on her website, on the socials, wherever it feels good to you. And let us know how this episode felt for you. Let us know what you took away. And most importantly, please share this episode. Please share any and all episodes of the Find Your Awesome podcast with your people. That's how we spread the word. That's how we spread the energy. And I am so, so grateful for all of you who do that. Thank you so much. Now, please remember, I am currently booking human design sessions. So if you are interested in getting a reading of your very own chart and or uh, for you and your partner, that can be a romantic partner, business partner, best friend, child, niece, nephew, whatever, go to kelseyabbott.com human design to book your session. And then also if you're feeling all the feels right now, oh my goodness, I got you. <laughs> I got free meditations at kelseyabbott.com slash meditations. Use, share. Those are totally free and totally disconnected from anything. I don't know that you're using it. It's just my gift to you. And I want you to have like unguarded, completely free access to those. On um, other news, I'm still teaching Saturday core classes via Zoom. You can sign up via kelseyabbott.com slash core. If you want to contribute, excuse me, financially to the Find Your Awesome podcast, go to patreon.com slash Kelsey Abbott. And I think that's it. Oh, I'm, I coach people around their design too. So if you've already had a reading and or if you just are looking for 
help right now, please reach out and let's start a coaching relationship. You can learn more about me at my website, which is kelseyabbott.com and just reach out to me. Let's start a conversation. I love you. We got this. I got banana cookies in the muffin, in the, oh, no, I don't. I've got banana cookies in the oven that I got to go check on. Oh, this life is ridiculous. I love you. Go forth and be awesome and laugh a whole hell of a lot. 